if you have fear that's affecting you, there's no way that you can feel like a great CEO when you know that you're not addressing the behaviors that actually weaken your business. Welcome to CEO Brain Food. Every episode, entrepreneur, CEO, founder, and host Michael Langhout will bring you key insights, fresh perspectives, and proven tools you can apply to your business. Thought leaders and CEOs will be interviewed as we explore winning strategies for scaling a company, generating profits, and building lasting enterprise value. Make sure you listen all the way to the end of the episode to hear how you can download a free copy of Michael's Functional Team Scorecard. Here's Michael. Hello and welcome back. Today I'm very pleased to welcome Mark Green to CEO Brain Food. Mark is a veteran coach to high-performing companies, specifically coaching CEOs and their leadership teams. He's also an author and a speaker. And on a personal note, Mark has had a huge influence on me and my own coaching practice. He's helped me to not only define who I should be working with, so we call that our core customer. But also, he's guided me to discover and refine my own unique voice as a professional business growth coach. He challenges me, sometimes makes me a little uncomfortable, but in the process allows me to grow professionally, which I'm very, very grateful for. So, so welcome, Mark. Oh, Michael, thank you. It's so nice to be here. So we got a problem right out of the gate. You said I only make you uncomfortable sometimes. It sounds like I got to I got to up my game there, man. <laughs> well, one thing uh, I had a really difficult time doing coming out of being a CEO and becoming a coach, and I think I met you when that happened. This would have been back in gosh, I don't know, 2014. I know you've been coaching for gosh over 20 years and I think I've been I've been coaching a long time but mostly as a CEO but not professionally but the biggest problem I had transitioning to coaching was the quality of the question asking questions as opposed to you know making decisions and um and in the process of doing that kind of pushing it a bit making people uncomfortable Yeah for sure and you know it's actually one of the uh leadership behaviors that I point out as a virtuous behavior in my book Activators is your question to statement ratio, you know, and uh, are you as a leader asking far more questions than you are making statements? And it's a hard thing to learn because your path to, to leadership usually involves being the expert for some period of time, and then you elevate over time. And when you're the expert, you have the answers and you're expected to have the answers. And yet all of a sudden you're in this leadership role. And the whole point of creating leverage in an organization is to, is to, leverage the other people in the organization. And if you continue to have all the answers, you can't create leverage and people get stuck that way. But it's, um, it's the transition to a coach that really forces that issue as well. And frankly, the best, the best answer to it all is while you're still the CEO is also to be the coach because that, that kind of forces that transition sooner rather than later. And you can get more leverage from your organization by asking more questions. They're down in the weeds so much, though. You know, it's what I find with clients that I have is that they have a hard time coming up to a higher level uh, where they can pull themselves away and, you know, really work on the business um, as opposed to in it. So it's interesting. I have some heat on this topic if you want to go there for a second. 
because what I find is that when, when we talk to leaders about coaching and you really unpack what they do when they, when they think they quote coach, and I'm using air quotes for, for the word coaching here, is um, they coach for results. And what I mean by that is it's kind of like, well, my person is work, my employee is working on this project and I'm trying to help them with this thing because it's this obstacle so that they can get the project done. And so they would characterize that interaction as a coaching interaction because I'm coaching them on how to, how to get their project done or coaching the salesperson on how to close the deal or how to get more meetings or whatever. Those are all examples of coaching for results. Now, that's what most leaders think coaching is all about. And on the one hand, coaching for results is good, but it's not great. What we really need to be doing is teaching our leaders to coach for growth. Because when I'm coaching for results, I might help you get the project done, but I'm actually not teaching you to be independent and do it yourself next time. Okay. So I'm actually fostering dependency by coaching for results. Whereas coaching for growth is having a conversation like, hey, Michael, you know, I've noticed that for each of the last three projects you worked on, you had the same blind spot around, you know, not having all the right information before you made decisions. How do we, let's talk about that. And let's, let's talk about what you can do to not have that blind spot again for this project, right? And now all of a sudden, I'm coaching for growth because that interaction is going to make you see the pattern, learn something from the pattern, grow from the pattern, not repeat it, and in the future, be more independent. So great. It reminds me of uh, Covey's uh, comment uh, back, I think, in the 80s when he was writing about uh, teaching a man to fish, catch a fish uh, that would feed him for a day. Teaching him how to fish is, is going to help him for a lifetime. Yeah. And the coaching application of that is, is stop coaching for results and start coaching for growth. Um, it's, it's really, t- in middle management, this is rife coaching for results. I mean, particularly just think of sales organizations, right? It's all about closing the next deal, closing the next deal. And then everybody wonders why the sales managers are running around with their hair on fire all the time, closing every deal. It's because they're never actually growing their people to be able to do it themselves. A great point. And, and, you know, even when we work with, uh, with companies, Mark, as coaches, I mean, we're, maybe we're only doing half the job. I mean, we're, what we're doing is helping them, you know, find their direction, their strategies, et cetera, and executing on them. But we're setting, helping them to set goals and we establish metrics to measure progress against those goals. And so that's, that's results coaching. And one of the things I loved, you mentioned your book, Activators, and I didn't introduce that properly, but just to come back, you, your book, Activators, a CEO guide to clearer thinking and getting things done, which I know you wrote uh, and published a couple of years ago, is really, really a terrific book because it, it's offered to seasoned leaders as an operations manual for your business mind and helping them to unlock additional you know, human potential, which you talk about in your book. And we'll get to that in a bit on purpose, but, uh, but that's, that's a big claim. Um, and, and I know after reading that book, actually I've read it a couple of times, I can understand why you'd say that, but the, the business mind is not a place most people dare to go, right? We I mean, we focus on the basics of running the business, the results, you know, that's where a lot of coaches spend most of their time, but why is getting the results done so much of a struggle for people? 
I think it's because of what you just said that we rarely go there. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a lot easier to talk about what should our priorities be? Right. What are our, what are our goals and our metrics and all of that? Then, you know, like, Hey, Michael, as a CEO, do you realize that the things you do and say actually make your team stupid? (laughs) Right. And, and actually have a conversation. That's by the way, I'm making that up. That's not true. But, but to be able to say something like that, in a conversation with a business leader that causes them to realize that the way they're being is, is having a profound impact on their results over time and their ability to get what they say they want most. And, and that's the reason I wrote this book is we, we have a very clear picture of the life we want to live. Most people have a pretty clear picture, especially in the, in the circles we travel in of what, what, what you want to create in the world or you, you, this legacy you want to have and what you want to leave behind or how you want to be known. We have this clarity. And yet we get in our own way all the time. And many of the times we're actually blind to the fact that we're in our own way. We, we externalize it. We think, wow, it's just hard or wow, we can't get the right people or you know, the list of excuses goes on and on and on. But it's the willingness to look in the mirror and start to really understand some of the mechanisms that are at work behind the scenes that create how we think, how we, how we look at the world, how we th- interact with the world, and, and how we make choices and how we behave. It's getting into there that you can really unleash some, some great stuff that otherwise, if you kind of just go bouncing through your normal day, you, you never quite get to. And it is a risky area, and it's not a topic that's for everybody because not everybody's willing to hear it. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, in in our world as coaches, we write things down, we hold people accountable, we, you know, we set, we help set goals, we measure. I mean, we we have the metrics up, we have the dashboards up. We're we're constantly looking at, uh, you know, accomplishments towards the, uh, you know, towards that ultimate goal, and and yet as I said earlier, it's like, that's half the equation. The other half is what's, what's really going on. And, and I think, uh, you know, you, you had said, uh, in your book, you're asking the question, why is it so difficult to execute what I already know I should be doing? Right. And, and pointing out that there's a big disconnect between how we think leadership works and how it actually works. You're, you're really diving into that, the, the mind that we're talking about, the mind of the leader. And, and you described hidden growth killers, which really put the brake on uh, progress. So I thought that was a very interesting concept that we, you know, there's hidden, so they're hidden to us. They're growth killers. There's, they're putting the brakes on our growth, but we don't even know what they are. We don't even know that it is happening. And it's causing us to be so frustrated in terms of getting things done. I just, uh, I wanted to kind of go there a little bit and find out uh, from you about those growth killers. I mean, in your coaching practice over the years, they sort of were discovered or just through your activities. I mean, you didn't read about these in a book, obviously. You found found them through practical application. And through research as well, for sure. Um, so the, the three hidden growth killers I identified are our motivators, our habits, and our beliefs. And we unpack these in deep chapters in in the book and have tools that correspond to each of these to help uh, a leader identify where it's an issue for them and actually overcome 
the the uh, the hidden aspect of where these growth killers are affecting their results. And it's quite quite a powerful process. As I've done workshops and work with CEOs on these things, um, it's like turning the lights on in the room, and, and people can see themselves for who they are and see what's really going on, and actually have a tool to do something about it. It's quite powerful. In terms of how we think leadership works and how it actually works, you know, you can really understand where these hidden growth killers play a part because we, we have this illusion that is marketed to us by a lot of business thinkers who are out there and, and probably some coaches and thought leaders and all of that. And it's that there's this kind of neat cycle of, of how, you, how you lead an organization. The first thing you do is you, you think about, you know, what is it that we want to do and accomplish? Then you make commitments to, to, to do that. And you set some goals or create a BHAG or whatever it is. And then you act on those things. Okay. And then, and then as you act, you learn what's working, what's not working. Um, are we achieving? Are we not achieving? And then based on the learnings, you think some more. Um, and then based on that thinking, you come right back around the circle and commit and act and learn and think and commit and act and learn. And that's the cycle. And it sounds nice and neat. The problem is it's not how it works. Because at each step of the process, our hidden growth killers, our motivators, our habits, and our beliefs get in the way. So for example, yes, I'm thinking about how we should go about something or what we should do or why we should do it, but my biases and my beliefs and my habits of thinking and perhaps some fears that I have, which is a mo one of the motivators actually suboptimize my ability to think so that by the time I make a commitment to something, it's already been sort of filtered by my hidden growth killers. And then I make the commitment. But when I actually make the commitment, even there again, it's filtered because I might not be willing to put myself too far on the line for some set of reasons, right? Uh, or take the right level of risk versus the reward. Um, and so, so the hidden growth killers come up there and then when we're acting, this is where the part of like, why is it so difficult to execute what I know I should be doing? So we all know, I think, that we shouldn't have toxic employees who work for us. And yet, yeah. how many of your listeners know for a fact that they have somebody working for them that shouldn't be working for them? And yet there's all these reasons why you're not having the conversation or not taking care of them, right? Well, yeah. well th those reasons come from your hidden growth killers. You just don't realize. You have a belief system. You have habits or you have a, a motivator issue that's causing that. And then we learn from that, right? So again, we go back around the cycle and we learn. And again, we're filtering our learnings through the habits. Like I knew that would never work because dot, 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 you're, you know, and, and then we go around and around. And so what you end up happening is at each of these quote, neat steps along the way, we shoot ourselves in the foot because these hidden growth killers operate below the surface and have a profound impact on how, how we think and how we show up. Like we talked about in the mind. So I get this picture of the brain and, and you know, there's these gears that are turning and they're turning at a very, very high rate of speed. It's this filter that you're talking about. And it happens probably in a nanosecond and it's unconscious. We don't even know it's happening, but we react to it saying, well, we know we, there's no way we could possibly do that. Or I could never, I could never free that person up to go into another company. I could never let them go. I mean, I know they're really kind of unproductive, but gee, you know, Phil. I mean, he, you know, he's been in the shipping department for twenty-five years. We can't, we can't just let him go, right? Or if we let him go, we'll lose our second largest client. 
And, you know, all these stories, yeah, all these stories and things we tell ourselves that under a more rational lens don't necessarily hold truth. And it's sort of understanding what are the hidden growth killers? How do they operate in me? And what tools do I have to interrupt that process and put myself back at choice? Because the the whole idea here is when the hidden growth killers are operating and you're not aware of them, you're actually not really at choice, right? You're, You're surrendering choice to operate on your habits, your beliefs, and your motivators. And to bring choice back in, it actually empowers you to be back in control. It's like, um, you know, the voice in your head, yeah, right. You, you know, that voice and for your well. listeners and for your listeners who are thinking to themselves, what voice? Well, that's the voice, right? That's the one the that's voice. going like, what voice? Or I don't have a voice in my head. That's the voice, right? It's always there. It's chattering along chatter, chatter, chatter. You know, that, that voice in your head actually isn't you. So you can control it. Okay. And, and that's what I mean by taking back control. It's, it's, it's recognizing that there is the voice in your head that's the manifestation of your hidden growth killers that you probably listen to more than you should. And taking back control through these, t- these tools and, and the things that I've written about in the book is the way to kind of interrupt that cycle and empower your business mind to operate in a much more productive way. That's just fascinating that all of this is going on at the subconscious level. We don't even, we're not even actively deliberately thinking about them it just happens and it's based on these these growth killers these motivators these habits this belief system and so you're so the point is getting back to choice so that means that we're not in a in a modality of choice we're we're just operating in a way that uh is is so ineffective so i'll I'll share something with you that i think will really resonate with you and with your your listeners it's a, as a spe- very specific example of how this works. So let's take for a minute the, the linguistic term universal quantifier, okay? Um, a universal quantifier is a word like always or never, okay? Or should or shouldn't or must or mustn't, okay? These are universal quantifiers. And anytime you are using a universal quantifier, okay, well, we could never do that or you know, that would never work here. Or uh, we always have to do this, right? Or, well, we shouldn't do that. Or you must do this. Anytime you're using a universal quantifier, okay, I would ask the question, according to whom? Mm-hmm. And think about what that does to change your perception in that moment when you're using the universal quantifier. Yeah, it might change the the way that we're choosing to justify our decision to not do something. That's exactly right. Yeah, and and like because the universal quantifier is something that we use at a level of abstraction yeah. so that we don't have to deal with the stuff that we don't want to have to deal with. It like it it allows us to justify to the why why we're not doing it. Of course, of yeah. course. You know, it's like that infuriating statement: "The devil's in the details." Right? It's the same idea. It's like yeah. what? Of, like why would you even say that? Like, let's just go there and get it done. You know. And so, anytime you hear yourself or someone using a universal quantifier, like always, must, should, shouldn't, never. Okay, ask the question. Uh, according to whom? 
And it's going to yield a very interesting conversation that's going to surface the reality of the situation and put that person momentarily back at choice. And that's just one little teeny example of how we're so affected by these hidden growth killers. Every moment of every day, we just don't realize it. You know, and in, in going through these growth killers and, and you're kind of unpacking in the book the eight activators that you have that you've identified that really address and come out of these 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 three um, growth killers the motivators the habits and the beliefs we don't we're not going to take time to go through all eight of them but I would like to kind of look at a couple and the one the one big one and I think it's first for a reason is because <laughs> it's huge is is uh, re- is reduction of fear so going back to the you know the fear and I think you even you know, kind of took us back to our ancestral times of, uh, you know, hunting and gathering where, you know, something happens in the bushes and we're afraid that it might be a lion to come out and eat us. And well, that's not going to happen today, but the DNA is still there. Yeah. And our fight or flight response is still the same. So that when that employee walks into your office and um, maybe threatens to quit, your body responds no different than if there was a lion in the bushes. And, And that's a, it's not healthy. And B, in your office environment, it's also not conducive to very clear thinking because back in the day when there was a lion in the bushes, there wasn't a lot of thinking to do. You just, you know, hauled ass out of there and tried to save. Yeah, your, there was a. Yeah. A so it wasn't about. Yeah, it, it was never about clear think. That response is not about clear thinking. Right. Right. And so there, there is a, an evolutionary element to to where fear comes from. And fear manifests in different ways. I unpack in the book, the big three, um, our ego, which is about judging and comparing. How do I stack up? And ego fears reduce risk-taking because we're worried about what other people will think. Um, Scarcity fears, like there's never enough, a fear of missing out or money issues. Uh, the scarcity is a big one with a, a lot of the folks, well, most, probably most all of the CEOs that I work with have that, It's and it's monetary. It's a financial fear. Yeah. And, and one of the ways that that really hurts is an inability to narrow focus. So in terms of like really coming up with a, uh, a fine pointed strategy for a business is a problem for a lot of leaders because they're, they're fearful that, well, if I just do this one thing, that's this narrow strategy. I'm not doing all these other things. And we could have had all these other opportunities to the left and to the right. And and so they're hesitant to narrow the focus, right? And what you end up is you end up with a lot of more generalized approaches to business than really crisp strategies. And that comes at its core from a scarcity fear. I see that a lot with, with clients and it, uh, it, you're, you're pointing that out really, really helps. And so you're, you're coaching, you're coaching me and other coaches who might be listening, Mark here. So thank you so much for that. Yeah, for, for sure. And I've seen it with other coaches who I've coached and mentored as well. There's this, uh, reluctance to narrow the definition of your core customer, for example, that you, you let off the, the podcast with. And that's where this comes from, a scarcity, a scarcity fear. And then the third big fear is failure. And this is a fear of existential failure, uh, not transactional failure. Uh, and what I mean by that is like, if we don't succeed, like my life is going to be a failure or I'm going to have this massive disappointment in my life. And, and the problem with um, the fear of failure is there's risk aversion to make commitments and big bets. 
which for entrepreneurial success is, it, it is required. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, just, yeah, that's not going to work for entrepreneurs, that's for sure. Yeah, exactly. And here's the real kicker with the fears. And I think your listeners will identify with this. If you have fear that's affecting you, there's no way that you can feel like a great CEO when you know that you're not addressing the behaviors that actually weaken your business, right? And so if I have a C player that I'm unable to deal with because let's say I'm afraid right. of what's going to happen when I let them go. Okay. I can't show up to work feeling like a great CEO or like a, like no, the, the right. kind of person who's going to fulfill yeah. my vision of my legacy by building this amazing company and all these things. When in the back of my mind, I know that I have unresolved business with this employee who I, I feel hamstrung that I can't do anything about. And so the thing that you need to really understand is that your behaviors, your thinking and your behaviors are dictated by how you feel right now, not by what you aspire to be. And so if I don't feel like a great CEO because of X, Y, Z, then I'm going to show up and behave as the don't feel like a great CEO person. That's why this is such a huge problem because it feeds on itself over time. So you've got to correct these things so that you can show up feeling like the great CEO, because then the odds are you'll be acting that way. Yeah, that's the, so the whole point there is that it's, it's, it's limiting your, uh, your effectiveness as a leader and a CEO in the company if you're, if you're not showing up. I mean, can you imagine uh, Derek Jeter not showing up uh, you know, at the, you know, for the Yankees, not showing up fully and ready to go, uh, or, you know, or, or uh, Tom Brady and the uh, Patriots? You know, it's, it's like throwing the football. I mean, if you're not 100%, and I really believe that for coaches too. I mean, we've got, you're describing things that affect all of us. And you know, if you're not showing up just ready for game, Ready to ready to get into it and go for it, then you know you're you're really not you're really being less effective for your client. Yeah. So, do you think it would be helpful if I if I laid out the five symptoms of fear in case we have some listeners out there that still don't quite see how this is affecting them? Mark, that'd be great. Thank you. Yeah. So, there's five things that that I've discovered are the symptoms of our fears that uh, that we have, and so this may help you identify. Uh, where you may have a fear that you're not fully aware of. So the first one is a tendency to move away from loss rather than toward gain. So if you are the kind of business leader or thinker who is always thinking about defensive moves, okay, well, we have to be careful or the competition is going to eat our lunch here, or uh, we could lose this client, or you know, a anything like that. Yeah. Um, that's a, there's an underlying fear there that you need to be aware of. And it's, and that's the symptom of it, right? The next symptom is procrastination. Okay. In many cases, when there's a decision or an action that you are procrastinating on, there's a fear that's causing you to delay. And so you can, again, use that as a symptom to say, Hey, wait a minute, what's the fear here that's preventing me from actually doing this thing? That I, that I want to do. Uh, the third is the flip-flop. This is a great one. So you'll be meeting with your team. Uh, the team will agree to go do this thing and, and we'll make a decision. And then maybe you're out for drinks or dinner with a friend or with a, uh, somebody from your peer group or forum. And they say, oh, 
boy, you really made that decision, Michael? Um, boy, you know, we did that three years ago and it didn't work out so well. And so the next morning, what do you do? You show up at work and you say, hey, team, you know what? I've thought about it overnight and we're not going to do that thing. And so you're using some external piece of information that may or may not be directly relevant. You're emotionalizing it and then you're changing your mind and you're flip-flopping on decisions that were made and commitments that were made. Another sign there's some fear in there. Um, the fourth one is unreasonable continued sacrifice. This is like tolerating the C player, for example, or the toxic employee. Like Got it. I'm, tr- I'm tolerating it because I'm maintaining the status quo. And my point of view on that is as a leader, that's unreasonable continued sacrifice, which is why I named it that. And then the final one is really damning because in your gut, you know you're doing the wrong thing. And, and where this comes in is when I, I've had conversations with CEOs, well, you know, I know I need to get a new accounting firm, but dot, dot, dot. Or I know I need yeah. to change my banking relationship, but dot, dot, dot. Mm-hmm. Okay. And again, the problem with those is if you know you're not doing the right things to address the weaknesses in your business, then how can that notion coexist at the same time in your mind that you're actually a great CEO? Oh, you, you can't hold those two thoughts at the same time. And that's the and that's the problem. So those are the five symptoms of fear that come there. And we use logic to justify our thinking, Michael. So we're typically blind to our fears, right? Because right. you could have an intellectual conversation with a CEO around, you know, well, here are the reasons logically why we can't do this because we're going to lose this customer and it's going to cost us this and it's going to be that and it's going to be this and it's going to be that. And so we, we use all the logic to kind of create this buffer that protects us from, um, from our fears. So, which brings us to activator number one, which is reduce fear. And we've got a a tool that's in the book and free for download on the book website, um, which is activators.biz. And we'll give that to you again later in the, in the broadcast. And the trick in the reduce fear tool without getting into all the details is you want to reduce the emotional involvement. Okay in the thing that you're, you're trying to get done or make a decision about, and you want to increase the amount of logical thought around it. So we have, what you're suggesting is we have a, 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 an emotional investment in that decision that we've made to not do whatever it is we're supposed to do? Well, it's, it's the fear itself is emotional. Oh, okay. Got it. Right. So for example, if we say, well, uh, if I make this decision then this bad thing is going to happen potentially over here, right? right? That's emotional. But if I ask the question, well, so what's the actual probability as a percentage that if you make the decision Mm. that that thing is going to happen over there? Like, I want you to actually think about it based on your past experience directly and put a probability on it. And in many cases, what people do is they kind of tilt their head and they're like, well, the probability is like almost nothing. (laughs) <laughs> I was like, great. Then why is that the thing that's preventing you from doing anything? Right. Oh, that and, is so and, great. And this is where in workshops, it's always, it's a great thing where we'll be using the reduce fear tool and we'll be about five minutes into the exercise. And you just hear people start laughing to themselves because this tool brings it right in front of their face. The, the ridiculousness of holding the emotion around so many of our fears and, uh, and I've literally had people crumple up the tool 
and uh, and and just throw it over their shoulder and say, "Man, I'm just uh, I'm done. I mean, this is the, this is the dumbest thing ever that I'm not doing this thing yeah. I've, because I see it now laid bare how ridiculous it is that this is what's holding me back." That is so cool, and I love I love how the you provided a tool to help us really draw that uh, picture and 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 reduce you know get get rid of that fear, reduce it. Um, you know, the picture I've got in my head, I've got. I've got a few grandchildren uh, now at my age, uh, Mark, and um, one of them um, at at night, it's time to go to bed. And he has a real hard time going upstairs uh, into the darkness because he's afraid of that boogeyman, you know, that big monster. And and I think of uh, the picture I've got in my head is this giant lion that's in the bush and he's coming, he's going to come and attack us, right? And then as your description in the book, it's it's really nothing more than a wind. Or it might be maybe a little squirrel or something. That's in right. Reality, and uh, and so this tool that you're talking about helps us to take that uh, that huge problem that we have in our head and just reduce it down to almost nothing, and then we're inspired to action from that point, which is the progress we want, right? Yeah. And if it's okay with you, I'd like to move to activator number five, change your neighborhood next, because it's related in in many cases to why. We, we let our fear dictate uh, our choices and our decisions. Would it be okay for us to go there for a minute? Oh, Mark, and thanks for asking. And yeah, of course. Um, <laughs> I just love it. You're the author and, and you do this, but I just would, uh, would, I remember the story that you told about your grandpa and your first house. And I just, I love that story. Yeah. So, uh, and I'll tell it, I'll tell it now. My, uh, my grandpa, Ben, when I was uh, about to start searching for my first home, pulled me aside and he said, Mark, I got one piece of advice for you when you're, when you're buying a house. No matter what you do, don't ever buy the most expensive house in the neighborhood because over time, there's only one way that the other properties will, will drag the value of your house. Okay. It's just not a good thing. And I thought to myself, well, it actually makes sense. So I thanked him and I and I moved on and you know bought my bought my home and I've actually heeded his real estate advice uh, for every transaction that I've ever that I've ever executed. Right, it's been great advice. It wasn't until about a decade later, though, that I was uh, I was a member of a uh, of a leadership development training uh, organization and affiliation that I had, and it hit me like a ton of bricks that my grandpa Ben wasn't just giving me real estate advice. Because in that affiliation of coaches, I had become one of the most expensive houses in the neighborhood. Mm. That is, I was contributing mightily and helping other people, which felt great. But other than people who are sort of at my level, there really wasn't anybody in the organization that was at a significantly more sophisticated level than me. And it was curtailing my ability to grow. And that's the idea that led to this activator. Uh, activator number five, change your neighborhood, because often what I've observed is we maintain status quo networks, comfort zone networks, oh yeah, peer groups and social groups that we hang around with who are the same people we've been with for years. And the truth of the matter is, in many cases, you've become among the most expensive houses in all of your neighborhoods. And then you wonder why you're not growing as fast as you want to grow, or you're wondering why you keep having the same obstacles and problems in your business or in your life. And the reason is you're in the wrong neighborhood. And so I am an absolute stickler about continuing to upgrade the people who you surround yourself with. 
And the way I look at it is like this, unless the people you're hanging around with actually threaten your ego, okay? Because when you're in the room with them, like you never know what's going to come at you and that it might actually make you feel kind of dumb because they're so good. Like then you're not with the right people all the time because where else is the growth going to come from? And you'll, you'll relate to this, Michael, because for me as a coach, part of the reason my, my clients hire me is it's a change your neighborhood move. Now they don't think about it that way, but I'm there to raise the bar on them and on their leadership team. And we can do this for ourselves. We just have to have the discipline and we have to also be able to recognize when we're in the wrong neighborhood. Yeah, discipline and courage, I would add, um, for, I don't know, those are my word, my word, it would be courage too, because it does, you're, you're comfortable and hey, stepping out of that comfort zone takes, uh, you know, it does take discipline. Absolutely. And, and you got to be bold about it and proactive. Uh, you have to be able to, uh, you know, notice uh, that, notice what it is, call it out for what it is and then change it. So I see that with, uh, in my own clients, I, I can see applying this uh, this activator mark, the change your neighborhood a- uh, activator. I think it's great. The tie back to fear, just to make that connection overt, is that if I'm in a comfort zone network, then by definition, the people I hang around with are probably going to have similar hidden growth killers to me. Got it? So if I come to the table and say, wow, I'm really thinking about this thing that I want to do. There's some risk to it in the comfort zone network, I'm going to end up having my, my network mirror my own fears back at me, which is going to make me less likely to do that thing. Yep. So I don't have anyone really pulling me. Yep. Um, have you ever heard the analogy of crabs in a bucket? So have you ever seen live crabs in a bucket? Anytime one of the yep. crabs tries to crawl to the top of the bucket and get out, there's some other crab that reaches up and just <laughs> yanks it back down into the yep. bucket, right? <laughs> Well, that's, that's how you're, that's how a comfort zone network actually works. I mean, it feels great, but you're not going anywhere. Oh man, that is so true. The visual images that, that kind of, that are conjured up in my head when I listen to you talk, Mark, it's so, it's so, uh, it's visceral. It's real. You know, I can see it. Crabs in a bucket. <laughs> hey, um, Mark, let's focus for just a moment on, on, uh, something that, I think is super important. Um, and you reference it in the book a few times and really unpack it quite a bit later in the book. That's the concept of, of purpose. I have a group that I'm working with right now, uh, and we're going through a study of uh, Rick Warren. Pastor Rick Warren is a pastor of a big church down in uh, Southern California. The book is called 40 Days of Purpose. Sure. And, um, and it's sold um, so far, I think, 50 million copies. You know, Simon Sinek uh, wrote uh, Start With Why, which is a, a book about purpose. And he's, I don't know what the number, but it's its eight or 10 million copies or more. People have got a such a such a deep set need to find out what their purpose is. And it's so important, you know, to know that. But why why is that? I mean, why is finding our purpose, you know, such an important thing? So I have two answers to that. I think it's popular now because people think they should find it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so it's become popular. And so, so people think they should find it, but they off, they still don't know why they need it. And I think that's important to make a distinction that just because I'm searching for my purpose doesn't really mean I understand mm-hmm. why I need it or what to really do with it. And I maintain that with the cultural 
demand for purpose, notwithstanding, purposefulness is a chronically underutilized resource. Oh, so true. Often at great expense. Okay. And purpose ties into the, the second. So there's two motivators that we unpack in, um, in activators. Fear, which we talked about on the one hand, and on the other hand, inspiration, which is the, which is the other one. And that's your number two. Yeah. Increasing inspiration. increased inspiration is activator number two, but that's where purposefulness intersects. And in the, the business language, I'm using the word inspiration. If you were to kind of zoom all out, way out, you would see fear and love. Okay. On the other hand, as the two opposing forces of motivation, it's either trying to get away from something that's not good or trying to get more of something you want. Right. And so in the business world, we call that inspiration because love doesn't seem to work as well for some crazy reason. Right. So this is about tying in to what inherently motivates you. And that's the power of purpose. It's about being able to dig deep when the going gets tough. It's about being able to stay focused when distraction presents itself to you. It's about being able to say no to the wrong things so that you can say yes to the right things having been preordained. That's what purposefulness is all about. When I was first exposed to this, I was surrounded by a bunch of other coaches at the time. And again, this is in a past network I was a part of. And I was a, I was a young new coach at the time. And I, I looked at all these people with amazement because to me at the time, they seemed fearless. Like I would think to myself, well, how could you, how could you ask that question? Or how could you say what you just said? It's un, it was un, I couldn't comprehend how these people could say and do the things that they were saying and doing because they were so like focused and hard-nosed. It was an amazing thing to me at the time. And the only word I had was fearlessness at the time. And what I learned later was that I was mistaking fearlessness. It's really purposefulness was what they were. They had very, very high sense of purpose. And so we often mis- misattribute purposefulness as fearlessness. And that's not what it is, okay? Purposefulness sometimes looks like fearlessness because you're making the right choices. You're saying no to things. You're digging deep when the going gets tough. You're putting your head down and plowing through the wall to get where you want to go. But it's not fearlessness. Okay. We, we can still have fear and be very pur- purposeful. But these are the reasons why it's so important to get at this because it's like I said before, it's this underutilized resource. It seems like the core values, the core purpose, the things that we talk about in the foundational aspects of a business, the DNA part of it, so often winds up as eye candy. You know, it's up on the wall or it's in the website, but it's not, uh, you know, it's posted, but it's not in the in the head and heart of the leadership and the and everybody in the company. But one of the things that that I've noticed lately about purpose is, and I think this is uh, applicable here uh, in this conversation, Harvard Business Review just wrote about it. Just came out of, with an article. Um, Strategy and Business has has another article in their in their fall edition on the concept of purpose moving from the periphery more towards the center of strategy. It's moving and helping to inform and um, and direct uh, the thinking around strategy. I just took a a group, uh, a leadership group. Uh, actually, it was a board a board group through a purpose exercise. 
followed by a strategy exercise. So one preceded the other. Purpose was before strategy. And so once we got a very, very clear picture on purpose, we had a much easier time defining what our strategy was and, and setting the direction because the strategy was, was checking that purpose box, doing the right things, right? Being able to say no to other things, I think, is a big part of it. For sure. So there's two things that are going on here that I'm hearing in your, in your story. The first is you got to realize that creating a clear purpose is resetting what I call your locus of control. It's, it's essentially declaring, I, I am in control of where I am going. Because in the absence of purpose, you're actually not in control of where you're going because you're, you're open to, to, to other people's influence, right? Great way to think about it is if, if, I, uh, if I come to work in the morning and I think, wow, you know what? I really want to go out to Chinese food for lunch today. And at lunchtime, I walk around to my colleagues and I say, hey, you want to come out to Chinese? I'm going out to Chinese today. Odds are I'm going to take a bunch of people to go out to Chinese food, Right. But if I come into work and I have, don't have anything in my mind and somebody says, hey, do you want to go out for pizza at lunch? Then I'll probably say, yeah, sure, I'll go out for pizza. Okay. Now, obviously, my choice of where I eat lunch is not, a, it's not an existential decision, but, but that's how the world works, that if you're not at choice, then you're, you're essentially at effect. You're on somebody else's plan. Okay. And so being purposeful, the decision to clarify your purpose is a decision to be at choice, to, to have your own locus of control. And the second thing that's involved that you talked about was when you move to strategy, strategy is about having clarity on what we say no to and what we say yes to. And a great strategy, the hallmark of a great strategy is we say no a lot more than we say yes, right? Hopefully that would be the case. But that's the reason why those two things marry together, Michael, is because we're first saying we're taking back locus of control. We're being purposeful. So we're in control, which then empowers us to say no to the things we don't want to do and to say yes to the things we do want to do, which is why it flows right into strategy. And so I, I buy into the assertion from the Harvard Business Review article and, and the other things you've seen where it's kind of pulling purposefulness back into the fold of strategy for sure. Mm -hmm. And I love the way that you describe that tie in between the two. And also just would note that, you know, you've got a great exercise at the end of the book on, uh, on helping to find your purpose. And Mark, just for the record, what is your purpose? So my, my purpose is to unlock human potential. Oh, that's great. And for those who know me and who experience me in any facet of life, whether it's personal, professional, or anything, will know that that is authentically true of how I show up. And when you, uh, by the way, thank you for sharing that, uh, Mark. I, I, I wanted to, I knew that, and I just wanted to have our listeners understand that. And I know that to be true about you as well. But just the journey for those, for those that are listening, this, this purpose exercise, how for you, Mark, when you develop that, that purpose statement, how long did it take you to get there after first starting to think about your purpose? And did it evolve or did it just pop out? So the exercise that's in the book, which also is available for free again on the website at activators.biz, like all the tools and the assessments are, is a multi-week exercise mm -hmm. that uh, is deliberately structured to give you time to think about things. It's highly structured and a multi-week exercise. I think for me, it took probably maybe 
four to six weeks to figure it out because mm-hmm. you really need to be with it for a while. Right. And then when, when you finally have it right, you think you have it right, you, you, you sort of continue to test it and see if it feels right. And, you know, part of it is an emotional resonance. I call it the goosebump test, right? So it's like when I'm talking about that, my purpose, like I can feel the tingling, I can feel the goosebumps. And for me, that's like, that, that's like my way of my body's way of telling me that I'm onto something. Once again, another, uh, another great visual. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, yeah, it's like if you don't have goosebumps, uh, go back to the drawing board. Or, or go deeper. It's not, it's, you might be in the right vein. You just might not be deep enough. And, mm-hmm. and again, we're, so I think uh, emotion has been un- unfortunately uh, diminished in most of the contexts of our, of our daily lives, in, in the culture that we live in. You know, big boys don't cry, suck it up, you know, and and all of these things. And the truth of the matter is, our emotions are a very, very powerful indicator as to where we stand on something. And, you know, for example, without without getting into the detail of, of all of this, and I could do a whole talk on this, when you're experiencing a negative emotion, okay, it's actually a sign that you're focused on something that you don't want. Okay. So think about that for a minute. When you're experiencing negative emotion, like let's say fear, okay, that's a great negative emotion or anger is a negative emotion. You are focused on something you don't want. And when you're experiencing a positive emotion, like joy, love, ambition, the list goes on and on and on, motivation, okay, triumph, you're focused on what you want. And so your emotions are actually a navigation system. And what we've done culturally is we've diminished our ability to pay attention to this navigation system, which is this unbelievable blessing that we all have. And for me, it's been a bit of a journey to become more emotionally in tune with myself and to be able to speak to it with other and, and educate others around it. But it's been quite transformational because it really is useful. If uh, you can imagine, if you could spend a higher percentage of your time focused on what you want as opposed to focused on what you don't want, wouldn't that be a good thing? Absolutely. And by the way, by definition, wouldn't you actually be in a better mood more often? <laughs> yep. <laughs> like, why not, man? So that's the tie-in of our emotions. So back to purpose, you got to dig deep to get to the emotional level and you want to feel this emotion of inspiration or awe uh, or mission, um, all of those are, are very positive, deep, deep emotions. And that's how you know you're, you're kind of right around the target zone for your purpose statement. So to wind this down, Mark, this has been fascinating to speak with you and to listen to your, uh, your thoughts and ideas uh, that have been honed over many, many years of coaching. And that you unpack in this great book that you've written, um, which, by the way, I think I mentioned, I, I'm planning if for those CEOs that I'm coaching and for any that might be uh, out there, uh, please pick up a copy of this book because we'll, we're going to be going through it with our, with our clients. But be aware of the, uh, you know, the hidden growth killers, the motivators, the habits, the beliefs. Look at uh, Mark's uh, great solutions to those, the activators. There's eight of them in the book, plus uh, some really, really great tools that are associated with each one of them. I learned so much out of this. I mean, we just talked about emotions being uh, 
a navigation system. I never thought about that. I'm going to think about that a lot and really try to uh, try to really see that, you know, and clearly and, and start to understand more because we don't spend enough time on these things. Um, thinking about purpose, helping us uh, thinking of that as a locus of control. I love that, the way you frame that. And then and then the big one here is is really for all of us, just kind of being at choice as opposed to being influenced by other elements out there, other people, other other things, helping you to focus in on what you want. So, Mark, I'm just curious uh, in your comings and goings in business. I mean, what what are you thinking about these days? Have you got anything new that you're working on or what's what's happening? Yeah, as a matter of fact, I uh, I do. So I published Activators in October of 2018, just about a year ago, and I'm publishing my next book, uh, which is called Creating a Culture of Accountability on January 15th. Um, and this is a monograph book. So it's a smaller book that goes deep on a single topic. And I've identified accountability as just a really, really hot pain point with uh, mid-market leaders uh, as I've you know, coached over these decades and uh, worked with other coaches worldwide. And so I decided to literally write the book on accountability, which will be coming out in, uh, in mid-January. Well, that's fantastic, Mark. And I'm going to just ask you a very, very loaded question. And that is, would you be willing to come on to the podcast again? And let's talk about accountability because that is such a big deal. I would love that. I would absolutely love that. And I'll tell your listeners that um, you can find the books. Well, Activators is on uh, Amazon and also available on the Kindle and via Audible. And when uh, the new book, Creating a Culture of Accountability, comes out, it'll be available on uh, Amazon and Kindle for sure. I don't think we're going to do an Audible just because it's a shorter book. It's a monograph. And uh, that's where you can find the books if you'd be so kind as to want to order a copy. Yeah, and by the way, if you do order a copy to the listeners, please uh, f- please do write a review. That always helps the author. I would also direct you to uh, LinkedIn, where you can find uh, Mark at Coach Mark Green, and you can also find Mark on the internet um, at his website, mark-green.com. And again, once again, the uh, tools are all downloadable at his uh, site, activators.biz. So, Mark, thank you so much for uh, your time today. It's, it's really been a joy and a blessing to be with you. We've learned a lot. Um, you've, you've taught us. You've coached us. Um, and I think that's one of the things I remember about you the first time we met, which is that you're always coaching. And I really appreciate that. So thank you so much. Well, Michael, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to this episode of CEO Brain Food. If you're enjoying the content of these episodes and are ready to get your leadership team aligned so you can scale effectively, we invite you to download Michael's newest resource, the Functional Team Scorecard. This scorecard will help you establish role clarity and accountability on the senior leadership team, engage your leadership team in the financials of the business, and align and synchronize your team around a critical number. Download your free copy today at ceobrainfood.com forward slash scorecard or click on the link in the show notes. Tune in next Monday for another compelling episode of CEO Brain Food.